0: Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to Roll On. We're an athlete slash podcaster slash writer and a journalist slash author slash mask-wearing shark lover. Rip headlines from the internet and real-world life and wax on matters of interest. Try to make sense of the world. Today, we've got a few interesting matters to unpack, but the thrust of today is celebrating... That little book that you're reading right there, Adam. What are you reading? Oh, oh,
1: oh, uh, oh! Are we on? Is this We're live? We're on. Is We're this thing rolling. live? Is this a hot mic? This is. Um, I'm reading this great memoir. It's captivating. I think you should check it out.
0: Actually, you're reading the first version before I revise. First it. edition, you need, baby. You need, you need to read this one. I think. Oh, really? Is that yeah. the better version? This is better.
1: Yes. I so I I have the first version, and um, it's signed by the author.
0: Adam, I, let's hit I...
1: the point soon. Thanks for being my, you, my friend.
0: Is that the one that I gave you when we f- did our first podcast it together? Is, it is.
1: I had a Kindle copy, and then you sent me this one, or
0: you right. gave me this one. I'm glad that you still have it.
1: Yeah, man. That's I when I did the New York Times story on you for backstory. Yes, mm-hmm. I wrote a, a rich roll New York Times sports story. Um, I I reread it and. Uh, Love it, of course. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. You
0: being on roll-on is just me paying you back for that New York Times story. That was the deal that we started. Has it
1: been that has it been that <laughs> useful for you? <laughs>
0: um, no, it was great. That was in the wake of of Utila. Utila. Yeah. no, it
1: was it, it came out in the wake of it, right? Yeah, but right. we we did the research. That one prior. never
0: made the print edition, though. Listen, man, I'm still grinding on that.
1: I just work here. <laughs> I
0: know. Um, anyway, good to see you, my friend. <laughs> Glad to, to be you. back in the podcast studio with you. Yeah, And uh, yes, we're gonna talk about Finding Ultra. Why are we talking about Finding Ultra? Because this week marks the 10th anniversary of this book. So yeah. I thought it would be fun Congratulations. To, to celebrate that a little bit. Um, have a little peek through the, re- through the rear view. I'm having trouble talking today. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, we're gonna have uh, a little discussion about the art of memoir and yeah. just writing in general, and I think it's gonna be cool. Um, but before that, how goes it, my friend? It's good.
1: I'm, I have been. So um, you just
0: said you were good. Well, we, I know. You said you. People are <laughs> complaining that every time I ask you how you're doing, you say you're good. No, they and then did. You just complain. did it
1: again. They did complain, and then I I came up with my hijinks, my intro hijinks. And then, uh, but then the intro hijinks got you
0: just pivoted back to your. Guessing. Yeah, so then I
1: went back to my muscle. Uh, but to how be honest, you, how are you doing really? If you really want to know, uh, I've been deep in the in the deadline cave, and I have a deadline beard to show for it. You do it if, looks if good. you're not watching, I think
0: you should just continue with the beard. It's, it's
1: start. It's it, now it's moved past the growing down and out, and it's moved into the round phase. So I'm I'm dangerously close to having a Half circle of hair that just arcs around my yeah, face.
0: I know the feeling. That's why I just shaved mine off because it, it was in Chia Pet stage. Yeah, that's where I'm at. It's yeah. jowly.
1: It's real jowly. It
0: gets good when it gets long enough where you can kind of bring it down. Yeah. But that's a full commitment. When I shaved mine the other day, I thought about keeping the mustache. Yeah. I was this close. That would have been pretty. And I chickened out.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm actually thankful I'm not staring at a mustache right now. That yeah, would be hard to. It's
0: distracting. Nobody <laughs> needs that. You know, <laughs> exactly.
1: so. but, uh, but but this is a deadline beard, it's kind of like a cousin to the hockey playoff beard. Mm-hmm. Shout out to my brothers and sisters up in Canada. Not that uh, there's anything wrong with playoff beards, I like playoff beards. I, I used it once in Nicaragua when I was on a Lonely Planet Jag, a deep, I'd done like back to back to back Lonely Planet assignments, and the last one was in Nicaragua. And they get was me and one other writer and he lived in Guatemala, so he had first choice and he picked all the places that tourists actually go. Mm-hmm. And then three quarters of the geographic region of the, of Nicaragua, where tourists never go, he gave to me. <laughs> so I was like, literally like in the jungles. I mean, it was great stuff. I loved being out there, but like, I, I don't know that anybody will ever have used my material for, my, I mean, maybe Peace Corps volunteers mm-hmm. um, have used it, but. It, by the time I got to the jungles, I was like so whacked that like, I just couldn't shave. I would like, my nails were growing. My I was like a beast and I showed up in a Costa Rica hotel two days before my flight home and at like Christmas time and went to the check-in desk and they thought that they did not look happy to see me. Right.
0: <laughs> Do you have photographic evidence of this? <laughs> I don't know, I think you I should must. throw that up on Instagram. I must,
1: I must. On I must. Thursday
0: when this goes out as a companion piece. Well,
1: you know it's- I need a visual. Yeah, it's, it's 10 years since I've joined Instagram. So we mm. both have 10 years. No,
0: oh, congratulations. on <laughs> <by> being a- <laughs> I thought you'd like. We that. can all lament that, uh, but I'm—I
1: have been just writing and, um, you know, making oatmeal for Zuma in the mornings, and then mm. doing some running. I'm 75 miles into that 100 mile challenge we spoke about last time for right. Give Back Homes. The Give Back Homies sent us some hats. Uh, and I've been swimming like once a week. I need to swim more. Uh, my swolf, my swolf is suffering. What is swolf, by the way?
0: I've never heard that before.
1: You never heard of swolf no. stroke? It's like a stroke score that like comes up on my Garmin.
0: Oh, I have. I have no idea. I don't pay attention to that stuff. No, no. I'm a I'm a purist naturalist when it comes to swimming. You swim naked? I have. <laughs> not not recently. But uh, yeah, with all the, all the kind of data metrics on yeah. swimming, I, I mean, I wear a Garmin so that I can keep track of my yardage yep. and time and stuff like that, but I don't look at cadence or any of the other okay. metrics that it tracks. D-
1: doesn't bother you, it doesn't matter, your stroke rate doesn't even register for you?
0: I've just been doing it so long that I don't rely upon that for anything meaningful. Just feel. Yeah, I like it. What does that stand for even? You know what, I thought you would know. No, I don't know. Swolf. Maybe this is why swimmers are so much faster now than they were when I was coming up.
1: It's a combination of stroke count and time taken in the water and is often used as a measure for your swimming efficiency.
0: Ah, So how much much, uh, forward propulsion are you getting per stroke? Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. That's helpful. Maybe I should look at that.
1: You seem like a guy that would. would you'd probably well, have a really that good would. Swole. That would mean that I need to be
0: swimming. Which <laughs> yeah, I'm not how, right now. How are you? What's
1: going on? What's <laughs> going on with you? Oh
0: man, Adam. Yeah, talk talk to me, bro. The back is not good. What's which going is one on? Reason why we're not going to do a check in with Chris Health today. Um, it's just, it's really painful right now. If I try to do anything physical the next day, I have a real struggle. So first of all, we shared a couple weeks ago about this. I was just inundated with emails and DMs from people. So I appreciate everybody's sort of sympathy and concern. Um, that means a lot. Um, it also came with a lot of recommendations, <laughs> a lot of, you know, check out this guy, here's my protocol, right. here's how I solved my back problem. And that's great. I have to sift through it and, and figure out what else I can or should be doing beyond the protocol that I'm currently engaged in because uh, I'm not experiencing any kind of relief if I do nothing, then it's a little bit better, but I was in DC the other weekend visiting my parents and I had a little speaking gig. I couldn't resist the temptation of going out for a jog. DC is such a great mm. city to run in mm. and the weather was perfect. So I thought, all right, I'm just gonna do the slowest run ever, like a almost a walk, like a really gentle jog just so I can cruise around the mall, which I did. And I was very grateful to be able to do, and I felt okay while I was doing it. I didn't do anything hard. I didn't push myself at all. And the next day, I was like, I couldn't sit up in bed. Really? Yeah. And I haven't been back to the pool, so I'm pretty much benched right now. And it's challenging. It's much easier for me to train. You know, the 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 physical exertion is so tied to my mental health that, you know, I'm not happy about it. But this is where I'm at right now until I figure out a path forward that is. got some daylight at the end of it. So, is it I'm a, confident. a herniated disc type no, situation? No, it's not. It's it's, L, it's spondy, my L4 protrudes about a centimeter towards my gut like okay. forward. It's out of alignment and it puts pressure on the nerves that have created a lot of foot pain and some numbness in my left foot and just general discomfort. And I think the muscles that surround my spine are working so hard to keep it all intact that they just get really tense. So, I, and, and like your back, unlike, like if my shoulder was bothering me, I could go running. If my knee was bothering me, I could go swimming. But with this, every which way that you move is impacted by your back, obviously. Right. So I, I, I literally can't do anything without pain. Mm. So even if I sit for an extended period of time, like at the end of this podcast, when I go to stand up, I can't stand up straight. Mm. So not great. But given that I can't run, um, I still, can rock the new Solomon. Collab. You still got the runners yeah, calves. I know. I got. Those are from my mom. Those <laughs> those are those are there no matter what. You've always had them. Yeah, they, it's all show no go, Adam. <laughs> but these are the new Solomon uh, CLA collaboration shoes. Looking Some good. Some kind of weird leopard print. I don't I know, know exactly what that is, but. uh Pretty dope, right? Yeah, and those are dope. Stylish I love them.
1: I, I remember you posted about all the different collabs. They all look great. Solomon, it's all, you all know about collabs. Solomon, is, I'm running on Solomon's right now. Good. And you be. Um, I, I would take it personally if you weren't. <laughs> don't make this weird, right. Rich. Um, but yeah, no, that that uh, I love those. I don't have the fancy new collab, Solomon's. Right.
0: Yeah, they but, don't want to give but, those to me. You know, on the subject of collabs, yeah, because collabs is where it's at. I'm thinking what should the RRP collab should be? And then I thought, well, this is a collab. This is a Roll Skolnick collab. It is. Right
1: here. And it's that sought after.
0: The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Oh, thank you.
1: Thank you. There we go. Thank you for that. Um, but I like our collab. A, uh, I was I was gonna ask a zone two question for you on the subject of running shoes. I've been, I, I know it's, it's trying to bring your, I've put the spotlight, we put it on you and then I'm bringing it back to me, but wow. I've been, Zone twoing, you know, back. I'm back since running a bit more this month, um, swimming less. I got my zone two for to under ten
0: minutes a mile now. Good. Um, How did you calculate your zone two? Just through my Garmin. Mm, not a reliable. I know that's all I
1: got. What what am I going
0: to do? Well, there's lots of protocols. I got, I should send you to a lab and have you do a proper lactate test. Let's
1: do it. Yeah.
0: All right, I'll table. There's a place in Santa Monica if it's still there. I haven't done one in years. I love to But do I, that. I'm getting a lot of questions about Zone Two. Um, we're getting Dr. Peter Atia on the podcast. I think in June, right? It's, oh, cool. Uh, we scheduled it. Um, he's quite the authority on Zone Two, so yeah. we're going to do a deep dive on that. But the proper way to calculate and measure your Zone Two is to do it in a clinical setting, either on a treadmill or on a stationary bike where you basically undergo this protocol. The last time I did it, I brought my bike into a place in Santa Monica. They hook it up to a trainer. You warm up for five or 10 minutes. And then you start at a certain wattage. I think I think if memory serves me, we started at something really easy, like 100 watts. And every four minutes, you increase the wattage 10 watts. And you have your finger pricked for blood lactate. You calculate your heart rate at that interval point, and you give your perceived effort, like how hard is this on a scale of one to 10. And then you just keep increasing the wattage until failure. And then you plot those metrics on a a graph, and you can see when you get this crazy uptick is where you're going from your anaerobic energy system to your anaerobic energy system. And true endurance is reflected when that upward tick is way down the line in terms of wattage. And instead of like a hockey stick, it's a more gradual curve upwards. And you're always trying to push that uptick out as far to the right as possible. And it's pretty revealing. Like you think you're fit or you're doing a certain thing and then you get a proper test and you're like, holy shit. Like I go from my aerobic system into my anaerobic system at the snap of a finger when I hit this exertion level. And the idea is to push that exertion level as far to the right as possible so that that switch from one energy energy system to the next is sort of protracted as far out in terms of energy expenditure as possible hmm. or effort. Well,
1: possible. I look forward, I wanna do that because um, I'm just so bored at running like over 10 minute miles. Like it's just, it's like hard to keep doing it. And like, I don't feel like I'm getting, I mean, I am getting a little bit faster, but like at the zone two, but it's like, I wanna be able to be a little faster, you know, so it's like. Well,
0: Zone two works, it takes a lot of time if you're just doing it and doing it and doing it, but you need incredible consistency with it. Um, If you're just running three times a week in your zone two, it's gonna take a lot longer um, before you can hit a faster uh, pace at that same heart rate. But this is a longer conversation.
1: Okay, let's move back to you.
0: How's your career in NFL broadcasting going? Yeah, this is hilarious. (laughs) I tweeted this out the other day. So. This guy, uh, Connor Orr wrote, a, wrote an article for Sports Illustrated entitled 10 Dream Candidates for an NFL broadcast booth where he's reflecting on the Tom Brady deal, the $375 million deal uh, to get Tom Brady in that booth and thought, who else would be good or who would be better? And he lists a bunch of people and at the very bottom of the article, Uh, I get nominated along with uh, Steve Magnus, who was recently on the podcast. Mm. That episode hasn't gone up yet. Um, A rotating cast of performance science experts, Steve Magnus, Rich Roll, David Goggins, (laughs) et cetera. Those are three good names, so yeah, I mean, I'm honored, but the hilarious and ironic thing is that, like I know anybody who knows me knows I know nothing about football, yeah, trapper uh my stepson is is an n f l fanatic, he knows oh. everything, so I emailed him this story, and i said this this will give you a good laugh because he knows how little I follow it these days. <laughs> I mean, you're not a ball sport guy at all, I'm not, not no. Yeah. I'm into the obscure sports, yeah, you're in
1: the, you're kind of like that's why the the mustache would work. You're a hipster sports
0: fan. I uh, I am indeed. No yeah. hipster is that what it is? I don't know. You're into curling. Um, yeah. Here, here's. Uh, let me just highlight this for the YouTubers. So, yeah, Goggins, Goggins would be good. He would be good. Magnus, Roll, and Goggins have all written about the source <laughs> of our internal drive, about great leaders and exceptional people, having them put. A coach in a psychiatrist chair during the week would be more instructive to us as a football watching society than a decades removed former player more interested in catching the red eye. I love, I love how there I love is. how
1: how salty he is mm-hmm. about the typical broadcast. Boot. I know.
0: So yeah, thank you for that. I am touched and honored, uh, Connor Orr. And as I tweeted, um, although. Uh, I, I'm lacking in knowledge. I'm sure Steve Magnus can bring me up to speed with all his track and field expertise. Yes. And I'm sitting by the phone waiting for it to ring. <laughs> you,
1: but you'd yeah. be asking the play by play questions like, so how many downs do they get? Right.
0: <laughs> I'm not that bad. I used to go to Redskins games. Now the Washington football club. Can't say that. Can't say that anymore. Yeah. Uh, growing up, my dad would- take, Commanders. My dad's a huge football fan. The so Washington I, Commanders. I grew up watching tons of football. And then when I became an adult, I just stopped. Mm. But I love my dad and Lord knows he loves football. Oh. yeah! look at that. Um, anyway- What was, else? How was DC? It was good. I got to see my folks. Um, got to do like a little, speaking gig there. And it was the first time that I'd seen them since before the pandemic, so mm. that was good. And uh, yeah, caught a uh, screening here in LA of Blue Velvet yesterday, yes. Sunday afternoon, 3.30 screening at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles. That's amazing. Of uh, of Blue Velvet, which I highly recommend seeing in a real movie theater. I hadn't seen it in like 20 years.
1: Were you the only non-stoned person in the, probably, in the audience?
0: probably. <laughs> But interestingly, Timothy Chalamet was there watching the movie as well. Really? So little only in LA star sighting situation. And then I thought, that's pretty cool. Like a teen heartthrob who could be doing anything is catching a 3.30 in the afternoon screening of Blue Velvet. And then I thought a little bit more about it. And I thought, well, okay, he's the star of Dune. David Lynch made the first Dune and Kyle McLaughlin played his character in Dune. right. So here he is watching Kyle McLaughlin in a David Lynch movie, the guy whose role he's reprising in the latest iteration of Dune. I thought that was pretty cool. It is cool. Anyway.
1: It'd been cooler if the guy that played the worm also happened to be there. That's
0: true. Who is that guy?
1: (laughs) The giant worm. (laughs) What if like (laughs) Timothy was there and then the giant worm was like, and then they look at each other like awkwardly and then they, you know, like it, they don't sit together. This joke's
0: going nowhere. (laughs) All right, let's take a uh, a quick break and we'll be back with uh, some pretty interesting news from the world of obscure hipster sports and endurance. Love it. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that... Most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for a proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's dot scom slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story. But basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. And we're back. So this first story that we're gonna get into, Adam, is bananas. It is. It's the story of Anna Maria Wilson, Mo Wilson, who was a rising star in cycling and gravel cycling, who was murdered the mm-hmm. other day in a story that is, you know, basically deserving of any kind of true crime Netflix series. Yeah. Because the details behind this are are, are just crazy, especially for anybody who, Follows endurance sports and and particularly the, the relatively obscure world of gravel cycling, which I do. Um, you
1: follow gravel cycling a little
0: bit, not not super closely, but it's an up and coming sport and it has its stars. And um, this young woman had just arrived in Austin in preparation for a race, she and, was, she, and
1: she, she was like dominating all year, right? She yeah, was she's like been the crushing. Yeah.
0: she's been dominating the sport. And a lot of people are thinking like she's the next coming, like she's like the best female cyclist in this discipline.
1: 25 years old, she just had quit her day job Mm -hmm. and was going pro like full-time, yeah.
0: So she arrives in Austin, she's staying with a friend and she hooks up with this guy, Colin Strickland, who is a very successful male gravel cyclist who lives in Austin. They had had a little bit of a dating thing. Colin's living, I think living girlfriend, Mm -hmm. Caitlin Marie Armstrong, uh, who he's been with for a while. They had a period where they broke up for a couple of weeks. Colin and Mo got together during that period of time, but it was short lived, Mo left. He got back together with Caitlin. Anyway, while uh, Mo was in town, Colin, took her swimming and out to dinner and allegedly dropped her back off at this apartment where Mo was staying with her friend. And later that evening, the friend returns home to discover Mo dead in the apartment. At this point in time, it appears that all eyes are on Caitlin Marie Armstrong as the alleged perpetrator of this violent act.
1: Not just all eyes, there's a murder warrant. Yeah, there's a murder warrant out for her And U.S. Marshals are trying to find her.
0: Surveillance cameras have her black Jeep driving right by the house in the time period surrounding the murder. Uh, Colin and uh, Caitlin both have registered firearms.
1: Nine millimeters and hers is the one they are, they have a very high degree of certainty, fired the
0: bullets. Yeah. And, uh, And there's some evidence of, Caitlin's um, jealousy over Colin's relationship with Mo. Yes. So much so that uh, I believe there's some less than honest uh, statements that were made to the police about the extent of their relationship. I know Colin had like changed Mo's name in his phone so that Caitlin wouldn't know who he was speaking with or texting. Mm, And- Never a good sign. There's another source. That told the police that, you know, Caitlin was extremely upset about this relationship and had said some things that turned the police's eye on her as well.
1: So, this is a crazy story. Yeah, she said, uh, she's quoted as saying that she wanted to, like, a friend of hers tipped the cops that she said that she wanted to kill Mo, I think. Right,
0: exactly. Yeah. And so, this story now has become like a big mainstream story. It's not just a story within the insular world of gravel cycling. There's a New York Times article about it. The New York Post covered it pretty comprehensively. The Daily Beast covered it. E! Online has covered it. At this point in time, we're recording this on Monday, Uh, My understanding is that they have not yet picked up Caitlyn. Like they can't find her at this moment in time. There's an arrest warrant out for her, but she's not in custody. Tommy
1: Lee Jones and the crew are trying to find her. (laughs) Exactly. It is.
0: The US Marshals Marshals are like on the hunt for her at this very moment. So...
1: This is a yoga teacher who did this. Right.
0: She was a yoga teacher and and Colin Among and her were had a business together where they would renovate trailers like right. airstreams I think right. and she was also she's also a, a real estate agent right. in Austin. Um so this is just crazy. crazy. You know, uh, by sad. all accounts, Mo was somebody that was pretty beloved. Everybody mm-hmm. really adored her. And she had this huge you know, life and career ahead of her and her life was taken. Shocking. And a violent act of murder, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. So I That's, don't know, what do you make of this?
1: Well, I make of it two things. I, I don't wanna make, it's not political, but to me it's like, anytime I see a gun story, I think, wouldn't it be great if it was harder to get guns? Yeah. Because typically if there was no guns involved, if this was a country like New Zealand or Australia, and Caitlin couldn't get the gun. Maybe she, it would have been more like Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan and like a, a crowbar to the leg or something, but something that she could survive. Um, so I guess that's the only thing I can take away from it other than, you know, it just shows you that you just don't know who people are. Cause I can't imagine that Colin would have been with somebody that he thought was capable of something like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's a little scary cause it makes you wonder like, you know, it just makes you question what we're all capable of. I had that feeling the other day, not to get it too dark. Like I go from the gun control to dark in darkness, but I do think we all have a darkness inside us and we all are ca- like every right. human being is capable of shit. We can't even imagine, I think. Um, And just a lot of us are, are a lot better at managing ourselves. Um, and this is obviously somebody who was um, troubled, so. Um, I'm very sorry to hear it and uh, crazy story. And hopefully they find Caitlin and, um, you know, there's some sort of justice for the families and I feel bad for everyone involved.
0: Colin issued a statement. He basically said, he, he admitted that they had had a brief intimate relationship in October of 2021, but that it was over and their relationship is currently, or was currently platonic. But there does seem to be some questioning around how honest he's being about the extent of their relationship. I mean, the rage that Armstrong kind of held speaks to something different. And there is this video evidence here in this E story. It says police noted in the affidavit that a surveillance video showed a dark colored SUV bearing a bicycle rack stopped near the home one minute after Wilson entered it. I mean, that's pretty damning. And Armstrong had confronted Mo about dating Strickland, like there was an altercation right. on some level prior to this. So there's a, a bit of a history. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's freaking but it's crazy. one
1: thing about being dishonest and running around behind your partner's back. And I'm not saying that that's great behavior, but like, and murdering I mean, somebody you know, in cold blood. You know, it's yeah, like it's like you know, Colin obviously. Colin said that he hadn't talked to Caitlin also since like May 13th or something. So there obviously there was something before this that was a breakdown. I just feel bad for him. I feel bad for him. I feel uh, obviously horrible for uh, Mo's family. Uh, I thought that they have a very classy statement at the end of that Daily Beast story. I think it was where they're just saying, you know, as tragic and horrible these events are, you know, please remember um, who Mo was and what what she chased her dreams. She was uh, had a positive energy, and they take heart that people are mourning with them and. You know, you you really can't respond to this any better than that, so kudos to them.
0: I believe there's a GoFundMe set up also to raise money Mm -hmm. for the family. Final thing, one of the better articles about this is in the Boston Globe, Mm. and there's a piece in it about the person who called the cops, who had a relationship with Armstrong and said that Armstrong became furious and was shaking in anger uh, when she was made aware of, of Strickland's relationship with with Wilson. Armstrong told the caller, Armstrong was so angry, Armstrong wanted to kill Wilson. Armstrong then proceeded to tell the caller, Armstrong had either recently purchased a firearm or was going to, Right. I so mean, that doesn't look good.
1: That's why I say it comes down to access to firearms. You now she probably could have gotten a permit Anyway, because if she didn't have any background checks, but if you look at, we're not gonna talk about Buffalo today, but if you look at that situation where that person was red flagged, they had gun control laws, still could get it. It mm-hmm. just shows that even those laws aren't enough. And, uh, and cause like nobody would, it's it's the Gladwell argument. If there were no guns, nobody would be dead. You know, mm-hmm. like it's bottom line. Like he, he uses that argument with, uh, in his last book about suicide. If you don't have the means to do it, most people would, that impulse would go away and they'd survive. so mm-hmm. it's like he's he's shown that and it's the same true with this stuff like the darkness that she felt might have passed if she didn't have a nine millimeter sitting at home right
0: during that rageful moment right
1: so that's not an excuse for her because she made the you know that's that's it's a horrible act and I'm not making any excuses but uh, but you know we can't take that out of this sure.
0: So more will be revealed at some point, the U.S. Marshals are gonna find Armstrong. So this yeah. story will continue.
1: And uh, we'll be reporting it here for you folks. <laughs> yeah, we will. We at, will. Uh, what are we call that?
0: <laughs> What's this segment? Know, our collab, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like true crime and endurance. True, true crime you know, and hopefully endurance. Hopefully this, this, this uh, is not gonna be a recurring segment of the show. Um, all right, let's 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 move on. Uh, to kind of switch uh, gears on this whole thing, there was this piece in the New York Times written by your editor, I believe. Yes, Talia Minsberg, uh, shout out. These 90-year-old runners have some advice for you. And it's pretty great. I Like love this it. video of like these old dudes on the track, like throwing it down mm-hmm. um, and interviews and incredible portraits with these elderly people mm-hmm. reflecting on their running careers. And uh, I just I just love this piece. I think it's great. Like, look at these portraits.
1: Amazing. These guys,
0: you know, guys in their 80s and 90s. 80s
1: and 90s and women.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, there's like two women that race. always
1: face off in like in every event or something like <laughs> yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> just go at it.
0: <laughs> I know, I know.
1: Uh, um, and they all yeah, basically say, just keep moving, right? That's the idea. Basically, yeah, yeah
0: This this woman, Lillian, Ashley is 93. Mm -hmm. She says, I guess you just have to have the love to race, the determination to just do it. I love, there's a consistent thing when you talk to older people and you ask them questions like this, their answers tend to be pretty straightforward and and simple. It's like, just keep moving. Don't think about it, you know. Mm. Just gotta get out and get after it.
1: Mm -hmm. I think about like, it, the La Jolla Cove has a group of old timers that always swim the Cove mm-hmm. and you see them. And and sometimes they'll like be limping in and limping out, but then they get in the water and they're like free, their bodies are free and they can like move and they come out and they're so stoked, you know? And I, there's a story, my buddy, John Moore, who I swim with a lot uh, or used to prior <laughs> when, I had, when I had the time to swim more yeah. often. Now I swim when I can with him, but, uh, he loves this story where he was there and he watched this happen where this old old timer comes out of the water. It was like a 57-degree water day. And he's, you know, of course not in a wetsuit. And someone says, Um, how was it? Oh, it was great. Did you see anything? No, no, no. The visibility was terrible. Oh, okay. But and well, what was the water warm? Oh, no, no, no. It's freezing right now. Yeah. Okay, but but was it was it nice? Oh, it was great.
0: <laughs> it was just like beaming. Yeah.
1: That PMA, yeah, yeah, positive
0: mental attitude, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And Don't that, underestimate that it. I, I feel that with these photos. Yeah, it's
0: pretty. It's pretty cool. I yep. just saw a little video on Twitter um, this morning. Somebody had posted it. I can't remember, but it was a video clip of the Masters hundred yard dash, and some guy. I think he was sixty ran like a 13-1 and there's a video of him running and he looks like a pro, like he's throwing down. 13-1 on a yeah. hundred?
1: Yeah. Jeez,
0: We'll see if we can find that. Do you it's think I could good. beat
1: one of these guys in the hundred? Probably. Okay.
0: Depends on your zone too. I looked at the
1: times. I'm not I, I, I'm <laughs> not fast. You <laughs> looked I, at the times.
0: <laughs> I wanna make sure I can beat him. Yeah. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> they're they're, um, they're more seasoned competitors. All right, let's talk a little bit about this sub seven hour Ironman attempt. Yes. Uh, people that listen or watch the show know how fond we are of the Norwegian experiments. Uh, Christian Blumenfeld, Gustav Eden, uh, Olav Alexander Boo. Mm. I just scheduled Olaf and Christian for the podcast. It's gonna be, it's gonna go down mid-October, we gonna record separate episodes with both of them, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but right now, the next big challenge, this is coming up soon, right?
1: Yeah, that's supposed to be, I mean, I, I saw dates online for June 5th, June 6th, but they, I'm not sure if they have confirmed the dates yet, uh, but yes, it's coming up. It's uh, akin to the Kipchoge um, experiment so that they can have pacers and they can right. have, and they can draft in the cycling leg.
0: So the idea is, to attempt to go under seven hours in an Ironman mm-hmm. using all of these otherwise illegal devices, and there was an article in Cycling News the other day um, that Alex Dowsett is going to be pacing Alistair Brownlee. Okay, uh, Alex is an outstanding professional cyclist, and and uh, it just kind of sets the stage for this event to come. I thought it was just Christian. I didn't know that Brownlee was doing it as well. So yeah, it's
1: a, are they the against, only two yes.
0: competitors? As
1: far as I know, those, mm-hmm. they're the two, yes.
0: Right, so these guys are stacking their teams with professional cyclists yeah. to rotate in and out and pace them um, throughout this. And Christian has his own team. I wasn't familiar with the the guys that he selected. Um, and it's, gonna, it's sponsored by Zwift. It's happening, where is it happening?
1: It's happening in Germany. In in Germany, yeah. Yeah. In Germany.
0: Um, On a 5.85 kilometer fixed circuit, at least for the bike leg.
1: Yeah, it's all gonna be laps, Mm -hmm. I think. That's part of the way they make it easier and like account for conditions.
0: And to put this in perspective, these guys are gonna have to maintain a speed between 45 and 50 kilometers per hour over the entire, 112 miles of the bike leg. That's crazy. To the target. That's crazy. Which is crazy, right? So and then and
1: then after that, run a very fast marathon. Very fast. Like it's like sub two thirty, I think. Like two twenty, right?
0: Uh, I don't know exactly how that balances out. So anyway, I hope this is going to be live streamed somewhere.
1: It will be. It will be. Um, and you know, I think at this point, it's like one of those fun things to do. I wonder how it it you know plays out there. I don't think they're tapering. For, they're not like. I don't know how much of a priority it is. Well, it's interesting because you
0: you talked to Olav recently, yeah. and he was saying this is like a blip on the radar in terms of how much right. they're focusing on. I it.
1: mean, you know, they they are happy to be involved in doing it, but it's not the they're not orienting their season towards it because they can't because the season is they just did the Ironman, right, and then and he just won it, and so then they have some uh, 70.3s lined up, the Olympic World Cup race in Bergen. Um, in late August and then Kona. So that's kind of the points that they're uh, orienting towards. And this just this is going to happen when the sponsors can figure out the best timing. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I think because it was a moving target, it's hard to aim for.
0: Yeah, I don't know, man. I think things like this go a long way towards um, really engaging the broader public yeah. in a sport that normally they overlook. Uh, if I was, scheduling this, I would try to do it at a time where they could put a little bit more focus and intention into it because it's such a spectacle. I mean, look what look what the Sub2 project did for Kipchoge. Right. I think it put his name in a lot of people's brains it who did. ordinarily would never have heard of that guy. Yeah. Like it was so mind blowing to watch him do that.
1: And it made his Tokyo win that much bigger. Right,
0: yeah. a lot more people were invested in that. Yeah. So from a, PR perspective and from a sponsor investment perspective, I think things like this, I think we need more stuff like this. Like this is not dissimilar from the Chris Chavez, Malcolm Gladwell, (laughs) you know, Miles showdown. It's like, these things aren't really part and parcel of like the traditional sports competition sphere, but it's things like this that I think a lot of these sports need to get other people interested in what's going on. It makes it more fun. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it elevates the whole sport by doing this thing. I mean, I I I the question is, does the, the marathon is this? Thing everyone can relate to the Iron Man. It, you know, it's tough to to know. And plus, I don't even know if there's the Iron Man involved in this. You know, they they don't like no.
0: This this has nothing. I don't think this has anything to do with Iron. Man. I'm sure yeah. they can't even use the word Iron Man, right. Because they police that trademark. That's my so, yeah. so it's
1: like it's that makes it harder. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's like uh, it's a collab.
0: It is, yes, it is a coll- <laughs> it is a collab. That is the theme of this podcast. <laughs> is it not? Um, well, I'm definitely gonna be tuning in for this. Okay. I, think it's, I think it's super cool. I wonder how Let's they're gonna do, do the run, because the way they did, like the Kipchoge thing was on the, that uh, Monza track in Italy, right? right. Or it was on, a, it was on a, uh, an, auto, an auto track. Right. And it was just one giant loop. Right. So for this, is the cycling loop the same as the, the run loop? And wh- what is the swim situation?
1: Good questions. I don't know. I don't know. I have yeah. not deep, I didn't do the deep dive. All right. Um, well. But we can, we can look at that because I think there's gonna be a roll on right after this, right? Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Here's an idea, because those guys are coming here right after Kona or right before Kona, right after, right?
0: Uh, right after, it's yeah. It's perfect. Um, I think, yeah. Right what after. about
1: roll on on the road in Kona?
0: That could be interesting.
1: Some real time reporting in Kona. Mm. Get Talbot.
0: Good thing about that. This is how I you act. would have to compete with Breakfast with Bob. You know about Breakfast with Bob? <laughs> no, who's that? So Bob Babbitt, who's a oh, yeah. a legend yes. in, in Iron Man. Yes, been around forever. Bon vivant. Everybody loves Bob. He does a show called Breakfast with Bob, where okay. all the all the like. The ballers like sit down with him and do a little interview. So I don't oh. want I don't want to encroach on Bob's territory. No, we don't want to do we'll, that. We'll take
1: the, we'll take it after after that. Yeah,
0: that could be fun. I'm going to think about that. Yeah. And anybody who's listening or watching, would that be something that you would be interested in?
1: Hey, would you like to see the RRP go on location?
0: Yeah, we could get a hype house.
1: Yes. <laughs> if only we knew someone who had a hype house yeah, in Kona.
0: I, I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, I'll think about okay. that. Okay. Um, speaking of hype, the last little story that I want to cover here, which is super interesting, is I love this story. Uh, the Australian uh, World Championship team trials just took place, selecting the Australian uh, swim team for uh, World Championships this summer, and very interestingly, Cody Simpson landed a spot on the team, swimming fifty-one point nine in the 100 fly, I think he went 51.7 in the prelims. Wow. So for people that don't know, Cody Simpson is a pop star. So to wrap your head around this, this would be the equivalent of like Justin Bieber making the Olympics. Like this guy was a huge musical sensation. Right. He's spent quite a bit of time in Los Angeles. He lived here. He's done a little bit of training here. Last I heard when he was living in LA, he had a relationship with Miley Cyrus. I think he was living with Miley Cyrus for a while. He's dated like Kylie Jenner and Gigi Hadid. Wow. This guy is like a legit celebrity. That's mega. Who had a background in swimming. He was a very good swimmer. Then he was focused on his music career. I know that when he was in LA, he was swimming um, down at USC, training with some of the guys who were training for the Olympics because I was introduced to him through some mutual friends. And I think he had made a stab at making the Australian Olympic, t- he competed at the Australian Olympic trials, didn't make the team. He's 25, by 25, the way. wow. Um, and then comes back and lands a spot on their world championship team and crushed it. I mean, that's a wild story. It's pretty rare.
1: I've never heard of a story like it. It's, it's the it's, only thing that I can think of even recent times is Jake Paul becoming a, a like a good boxer? Right, but he's, but he's not. He's, not, he's
0: a, not going to the Olympics in boxing. No, he's not making know? an Olympic
1: team, no. and he's not. He's he's also it's stunt boxing, and he's also not a mage, mega star. So it's like right. you know he is, but through YouTube. So it's a I don't want to rank people, but you know I can't how, think like, of
0: another athlete who is like a huge talent and celebrated for that talent and is also like an extraordinary athletic talent.
1: No, you sometimes get these athletes that like Jim Brown was at the height of Jim Brown's fame as an athlete, he was the best football player in the world. He started to do movies and he was in some big movies Mm -hmm. in the sixties. So, you know, like that's probably the close, but that again, he got the fame that made him a movie star. It's totally different when you're the movie star that then has to actually go through the, through the grind I and mean, but who an
0: else now is like around twenty five. all right, back to Timothy Chalamet. It would be like if he suddenly made the world championship team in the in the ten K right. in the ten thousand meters or something. Right, right. You know? It's crazy. And what a swimming story. is so all consuming. Yeah. Like you can't really do anything else if you're gonna compete at that elite level. And he looks like a brick house. I mean, yeah, he he's looks jacked. yeah, yeah. He's completely yeah, jacked and yeah. he's got a massive like Instagram following and okay. you know this guy's like a global celebrity. Yeah. You know, for his musical talent. So that's wild.
1: I'm going to pitch a story on him. Maybe I can uh It's a great story. H- latch on to the back of his entourage and get 5 minutes you of FaceTime. I
0: think you could drum up a pretty interesting story about this guy. I'd have to
1: get the access. That's the key.
0: You can you can swing that. You got connects. I'm married into an
1: Australian uh into the Australian That's right nation. That's right.
0: That's right. Australians hang close to each other.
1: Yes. Australians have more camaraderie within, within well, the nation. Well, especially
0: when they're expats, like in America yeah. and places yeah. like that, they, they flock together for That's sure. Um, the other big story coming out of the Australian trials is Ariana Titmuss, who set a world record in the 400 free, swimming 356.4, breaking Katie Ledecky's world record. I'm not sure, but is this the first one of Katie Ledecky's world records to fall to somebody else? I think so. I think it is. I think so. You probably know the answer to that. But too. you know what?
1: I, it was amazing watching that because her she was at way out front of the world record, and then watching the world record line creep up, you could almost see the you could almost see Katie Ledecky just trying to track her mm-hmm. down. You know, because I mean? right. she closes so strong, Katie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her, yeah, yeah, her back end
0: yeah. was stronger. Yeah. Um, Ariana went out a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: Kyle Kyle
0: Stockwell on on Twitter is a great source for mm-hmm. swimming news. He reports like a fiend, um, and he posted like he co- the comparative splits between Tiptnis and Ledecky, and it was pretty interesting to see how they differed.
1: He posted a great video of uh, Titmus's coach, which was Oh yeah, a I Dwight. saw that.
0: Yeah. 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 That guy was losing his mind. Yeah, he was like, sure. like I got the Jeff Spicoli haircut. Yeah, and
1: like, he, he looked like he was like seeing his favorite rock star. Like he almost looked like a rocker from like,
0: Yeah. Like A C
1: D C just showed
0: up. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And I shared uh, a little video clip of her swimming and there's this underwater camera view of her stroke Oh yeah, and it's just so powerful. So amazing. So it's her swolf
1: is better than mine, I'm pretty sure.
0: I think she has a good swolf. A good swolf. I still don't know what that is, but I'm sure hers is very good. <laughs>
1: but you know a guy who can test it. I do. Yeah.
0: I guess this thing on, on my wrist might be able to do too, but mm. I don't know about that. Anyway, uh, that's it for Endurance Corner. Let's take another quick break and we'll be back with some thoughts on the art of memoir. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. All right, before we get into the next thing, two thoughts. First of all, Davey during the break uh, was quick to add that Master P played in two NBA games, oh. one for Charlotte and one for Toronto, is that right? How so that's, that's in the ballpark, sort of.
1: I don't know. But you still don't know, because he was already Master P. So you don't really know, would he have made the squad had he not been Master P. Hmm. Whereas this guy, like with, that's a great thing about swimming. You can't make it. The
0: clock doesn't lie. You're
1: right. Yeah, who knows? They say in basketball, the ball don't lie. And in swimming, they say the clock doesn't lie.
0: Is that what they say? Who's they?
1: Rashid Wallace, ball don't lie, baby.
0: Well, if there's anyone else out there that we're not thinking of, like hit us up in the comments and let us know. The other thing is we're discussing the possibility of going to Kona during the break and it took Adam a nanosecond before he (laughs) inserted free diving into the conversation. how we could do freediving podcasts there, and go freediving. I got, and since, suddenly it became all about freediving. I got certified in <laughs> <at> Hona <laughs> Now
1: yeah. as a freediver. Right. And there, there's, there, they drop a line and it's about who's 40 the guy
0: bucks. there again?
1: Uh, well, I, I went with Kirk Kroc. There's a guy named, um, God, why am I spacing on? Is it Brett? Is it Brett Lemaster? There's a guy who that has uh, another free diving school there that's not Kurt Kroc. I did I, when I was there
0: diving. like a year and a half ago. I think I hit you up because my buddy Anthony Irvin was like, "Oh, I'm going to do it." Oh, right, Kurt Chambers. It. Yeah, yeah. So guy, the other yeah. guy
1: that uh, right. the th- the third guy that is someone who I'm the most connected with, but I never trained with him. Um, so there's two free diving schools that regularly do that in now, and Kurt Chambers has his own business and he's all over the islands. Mm. He's like the number one guy for yeah. training people in every island in Hawaii. Right. And it's also the best free diver of all of those guys. He's a hundred meter plus free diver. And um, and He has so a cool he,
0: Instagram as well. Yeah,
1: great Instagram, great photographer and videographer. So he's in the Philippines right now, free diving. So Kurt Chambers, that's what I was thinking. We could go dive with Kurt Chambers. right?
0: So suddenly, what if we go to Kona during Ironman week and all we do is go free diving and interview free divers?
1: (laughs) That seems like a a bad use of budget. Yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) Anyway, um, all right, switching gears here. uh, This week, again, it's the 10th anniversary of Finding Ultra, my first book. This has given me... um, a moment to kind of reflect on this journey, uh, which has been a really cool journey. Mm-hmm. That book really set in motion all of the things that I get to do today. And I'm very grateful for the experience of writing that book and, and, and sharing that story with the world. And uh, yeah, I just kind of wanted to reflect back on that and celebrate it. I posted a tweet thread on Sunday with a few things that I've learned along the way as a result of writing this book. Yes. Um, Not the least of which is, you know, often when I get interviewed or I see press about myself, it says New York Times bestselling author. And I always laugh, it's like, this book was not a New York Times bestselling book. It it, it never made the New York Times. It didn't make any of those lists. Like it came out, it did fine. um, And it found a little bit of an audience. And from there, it's just been a very slow build, obviously the podcast has been helpful in it reaching more people, Um, but just this kind of steady uptick year after year of people finding the book and enjoying it and sharing it, which is kind of like this podcast and is really emblematic of like every success that I've had. Like I haven't had big viral moments. Like I said, in the tweet thread, I haven't been on Ellen or the Today Show or, you know, done a lot of mainstream stuff. I mean, maybe the most mainstream thing was the New York Times article that you wrote about mm. me, which I'm very grateful for. That was many, many years after this book came out. Right. But you know, everything that I've been able to achieve has been a really slow burn. And so it was kind of a meditation on on leaning into that.
1: On the long game.
0: Yeah. The long it's all about and, and as an ultra endurance athlete, like it's fitting.
1: Yeah, I, know. I I love that tweet thread. I thought it was it was cool. You say that the book has sold better each year since mm-hmm. it was published.
0: Yeah, I don't know if that's entirely accurate. Mm-hmm. I know it continue you know it continues to sell, and I I would have to go back and look at the specific numbers. I'm sure there's been you know ebbs and flows with that, but yeah, I mean you know I just know from getting the quarterly statements or whatever that you know it continues to sell as well as it ever has. I mean, obviously the first week it comes out, like you're gonna sell a lot because it includes those pre-order numbers. And then after that, there's a huge dip. And right. then from there forward, it's just been kind of a solid growth curve. Well, do you mind if I
1: ask some probing questions? Sure. On the record? There's no off the record here.
0: Never with uh, you, is that is that what you tell all your sources? No, what I tell
1: them <laughs> is anything you want off the record, just let me know, but not you Rich. No, okay, I'm I'm game. Um so tell tell us a little bit about like where you were in your life when you decided to write the book because you've already done these amazing feats. You've already kind of you're on the path. You've already you're you're sober, you're you're an endurance athlete again. You're you're fit. Um so like what what where were you how
0: many years after Epic 5? How did it all come together? It came together fairly shortly after Epic 5. I'd come back from that and was trying to figure out what I was gonna do next. Um, and it was a challenging time. Like we, I was still a practicing lawyer at that time, but I had lost so much interest in pursuing that, that I wasn't really making very much money doing that. And was really struggling to to pay the bills and to figure out how to provide for my family. And And the way it came together is, is kind of a cool story. Um, there had been a little blurb about me in the Stanford Alumni Magazine about how I had done these races. And it mentioned that I had been sober for a while. And in the wake of that article coming out, I got an email from a guy who had been a swimmer at Stanford, who was somebody I didn't know. He He was several years older than me. And he just said, listen, I saw that article in the Alumni Magazine um, I'm newly sober, and you know it would be good to be able to talk to somebody. Could we like talk on the phone? And I just called him up, or he called me. And this guy had recently gotten out of treatment. He's CEO of a large company. Nobody on his uh, in his company knew what was going on with him, and he was trying to navigate like early sobriety and all of the kind of you know challenges of that. and I just was there to be of service to this guy and share whatever I could to to help him. And that was it. And we had a number of calls, talked every couple of weeks for a period of time. And at some point he said to me, like, you know, you have a pretty cool story. Like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I hadn't seriously ever thought of writing a book. Uh, I had thought, like, maybe, you know, maybe that would be a cool thing to do, but it wasn't like I had ever taken any active steps towards pursuing that in any meaningful way. He's like, Oh, I know this book agent. You know, I should introduce you. And he did. And that led to me being on the phone with Carol Bidnick, who became my agent at the time. And I told her the story. And she said, Well, you know, books like this are hard. You really have to thread the needle. I'd be happy to read a proposal and happy to help kind of babysit you through how to put a proposal together. If you're interested, I can't make any promises. Um, and that was kind of that, but it was it was like a little crack. The door cracked open a little bit. And I've just learned over the years when you have that little opportunity, like those don't come around that often. So mm-hmm. I was like, this is something I'm gonna take really seriously. And I worked really hard for like three or four months on a proposal, um, which entails, it's like writing a business plan for a book, as you know, cause you've done it. Like yep. you have to, Create a, create a marketing plan and you have to synopsize the book and you have to write a couple chapters of it and you gotta outline the whole thing. Like you gotta kind of spell out the entire project yep. and also make the case for why it's viable in the marketplace. And I'd never done anything like that before, but I worked really, really hard on it because I knew like this is a shot that doesn't come around that often. And when it was done, sent it to her and she said, this is, this is good. But again, like this is really hard. And I've got a couple, you know, publishing potential buyers here, who I think might be interested in this, but like, you know, we'll see. Like she was very tempered in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but she said, I'm gonna slip it to a few people and I'll be in touch. And literally like within a day, I'd gotten um, interest from Random House, Rick Horgan, who's a editor there, is a big editor. At Crown at the time, um, was interested and Carol's like, "Let's do a call," and I still remember the call. I was like at the at this at the at the Calabasas Commons, which is like this outdoor mall. Like walking around when this call was scheduled because I didn't have an office and I couldn't work at home. We had young kids and all that kind of stuff and. I would like go to the Barnes and Noble, which had free wifi at the time to work. And yep. so to do this call where it was quiet, I remember like going behind some bushes to like do this pitch call. Yep. And, you know, he just said, you know, tell me about this project in the book. And I just laid it on thick and like threw down the best case that I could make on the phone. And within 72 hours, we had a deal that he took it off the table and like we were like off to the races. Mm. And Carol was like, that never happens. Um, you don't understand, like this is always a much more protracted, challenging situation. So it was unbelievable, like I was, you know, I couldn't believe that this was happening. And so there was another kind of crack, you know, door cracking open, just because you write a book doesn't mean it's gonna be good or successful. So I really busted my ass for like a year to, put this book out and make did it as you, good you as I could.
1: Did you separate yourself from your
0: law practice entirely during that year? No, I was straddling both because mm-hmm. I got like an okay advance for a first time writer. But as you know, you you see like, oh, it's this much money, but right. it, it's like, okay, you get 25% on signing and then 50% when you deliver the manuscript and then the other like whatever percent when the book comes out. <laughs> so. This is spread out over right. a long period of time. And when you take out taxes and agency commission, like it was, I was incredibly grateful for it. It was huge, but it wasn't a situation that was gonna be able to sustain my family right. over a period of a year and a half. Right. So I had to supplement my income with still practicing law at the time. I didn't, I didn't pull the plug on practicing law until the book came out. Mm. And then I was like, I'm not renewing my bar membership
1: fantastic Which so after, after after the book came out
0: yeah then I was like I'm done and, and that was scary too because yeah. you would think like when the book comes out oh all these opportunities happen and like you you know you're you you got to be this guy and go tour with the book and it was like yeah I did a little bit of I did a couple of appearances a few people came to them it wasn't any big deal and then it was like crickets right you know and part one of the lines in the book is, when your heart is true, the universe will conspire to support you. And I was like, my heart's fucking true. Like the universe will conspire to support me. I believe that. What I realized is that it was not gonna be on my timeline. No, not on your schedule. And I had to suffer for, Quite a long time before things started to turn around, and and I was able to like create a vocation out of what the book you know began.
1: So the book comes out, you you cancel your bar membership. So what are you doing like in, in that t- time? Because even if even if it was selling well, which you said it was doing okay, but you're, it's not like you're going to be able to live off of that.
0: I mean, it was it was dark, dude. Like we that was the period of time, and I've spoken about this many many times before, so we don't need to go into detail around it, but you know, we had cars repossessed. I couldn't pay for our garbage removal. So our bins got taken away. We were driving around in a completely beat up minivan that had like 200,000 miles on it that smelled like garbage because we had to put our garbage in the minivan and then find an empty dumpster somewhere to dump them. Like it was humiliating and emasculating. Um, But you know, I'd get the occasional 500 bucks to go speak somewhere or you know, some little opportunity would come along, but it was dark and mm-hmm. we were drowning. And that's when the opportunity to go to Kauai and work with this guy, Chris Jabe, came along. He threw us a lifeline to help him figure out uh, how to make use of this amazing property that he owned on the North shore of Kauai. And we moved to the Hanalei uh, area and lived in yurts on his organic farm. And I worked with him for three months trying to help him as best I could. And he paid us and that allowed us to like pay our bills. And it was like, I'm so incredibly grateful for it. It's, it's confusing and weird in that like, I don't know why he thought I could be the, I was the right person to right. fill this, you know, strange role that he wanted filled, but I'm extremely grateful to him because he, short of that, like, I don't know what we would have done, but it was during that period of time, which was the winter of 2012, that uh, I started the podcast mm-hmm. there, um, and that's kind of what led to everything that's followed. Yeah, right. So, you
1: started that there, so it was, it's it, it is related to this to the book in in that regard, right? Mm-hmm. The book happens, you leave law, and then and then um, you know things kind of tailspin, and you end up landing in Kauai softly in a beautiful place, and then start this podcast.
0: Yeah, and to be clear, like the podcast was a fun creative passion project. Mm-hmm. It was never considered to be something that would, you know, generate money that uh, that would allow me to support my family. And for a snapshot of what podcasting was like in 2012, it's nothing like it is today. Like it wasn't cool to start a podcast. I didn't know anybody other than myself that listened to podcasts. Right. It was difficult to download a podcast. This was before the iPhone right. and streaming. You had to download it on your desktop or your laptop, and then bounce it to an iPod to yep. create these like playlists. It was a, it was a thing, and and at the same time, it was also a moment in time where you know no, pe- it wasn't like people were starting podcasts all over the place. Right. So from the very first episode, we were able to make an impression on iTunes and solidify like a position in the charts and the health space. And that that I think opened the door for us to develop a listenership in a way that would be much more difficult today.
1: Mm. I can relate to uh, thinking you you get the book come out, and you think you you made it to a certain level, and you have because it is an establishing thing for you because there is a perception around it, especially yeah. if the book has either sold well or been reviewed well. Um, but even not, you know, just if it has some sort of anything around it. Like in my case, the book, my book, didn't. One Breath didn't sell as well, but it it uh, it had really good reviews in some places. And so then, uh, but then afterwards, <laughs> you know, you're trying to, you know, you're trying, you have to then keep making a living, right? Yeah. And for some reason you take your foot off the gas, I did, I took my foot off the gas a little bit um, because I wasn't like, I I didn't want to sell myself that hard. I didn't I didn't really mm-hmm. push the the PR as hard as like if I to do it again, I think I would do things a lot differently and I never would take my foot off the gas, but you have to go through that to know that.
0: You have to be utterly shameless yeah. in that phase. And that's not really in the wiring of most writers. Right. Like they write so they don't have to interact with people. They you know no, they write because like, they are ashamed. <laughs> Well, like many artists, it's it's like, I did the yes. thing, you go push it out into the world. Right. Like, I already created my thing. Right. Like, and 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 sometimes there's an expectation that the world is awaiting this great work, you know? Like, <laughs> nobody's waiting for your thing, no, you know? Like, you gotta make that. it happen. <laughs> and I remember getting counsel for, from some people who were like, you have to do everything in your power to make people care about this. And I treated that like my job. Um, did the best that I could with the small sort of, interest, public interest that I had at the time. Um, but yeah, it kind of comes and goes. And it, it, it's a weird dissociative experience because on the one hand, like I couldn't believe I was being given the opportunity to write a book. right? And then that book, you could go to Barnes and Noble and see it on the shelf. It's like mind blowing. Right, you yeah, know? that it's was It's like, cool. I can't even believe this, this is like so cool. Like yeah. travel to a different city and go into a bookstore and your book is there, Yeah, like wild, right? Yeah. And the fact that, 10 people would come to like, hear me talk about it. Like, who are these people? Like, that's crazy, Yeah, you know? So so that was all gravy and amazing. Um, but I think there's a public perception that if you're a published author and your book is in a bookstore, that like, you don't have to worry about paying your bills. And I can tell you that that's certainly not the case. The
1: opposite is true. Yeah. Um, your, uh, the writing style itself, like obviously as a lawyer, people know lawyers write a lot but they don't write in this particular way. They, they write, a lot of lawyers write in stilted, highly specific ways. Um, you were able to, to in, your, in your first crack, like, like I write all the time, so like I, it's part of my musculature, mm-hmm. you do now as well, but in, in, you know, often for the podcast, but for, uh, for this book, you weren't coming from like writing every day kind of background.
0: Well, yes and no, I mean, first of all, have you read my demand letters from my lawyer days? <laughs> I would not call them stilted. <laughs> writing a great direct. snarky demand letter is an art form in and of itself. You should do a, <laughs> yeah. you should do a collection. <laughs> yeah. there's some great ones. like you know, I am in receipt of your. <laughs> yes. you know, I assure you that my client, you know, and whatever. Um, no, i was a I was a creative writer long before I was a lawyer. Like I did a lot of writing in college. I always loved it. Um, and and law school and being a practicing lawyer, I think only enhances uh, one's writing skill because mm. it, it lends, you know, structure to it. It mm. provides like a framework for making an argument and supporting that argument. Uh, as long as you hold on to whatever creative flair that you have, so. But just the practice of always being writing when you're a lawyer, yeah. I think, keeps that muscle strong. Um, but I think a lot, you know, the 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 sensibility of the book has less to do with writing skill and more about like a willingness to be vulnerable and tell stories that most people would maybe be too uncomfortable to, to right, share. But
1: you tell them as if you're, you know, write, you're writing as you talk, which is what you should do. And so it's a very natural voice in the book.
0: You know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you when you're writing, but for me, the approach with this book is, was to overwrite it, like just write everything and then figure out what the salient stories are and like band. cull out everything that isn't moving the story forward and I work with it you know Rick Horgan was my editor but I also work with another editor because I think you need that that sounding board or that feedback yeah. because you're too in the middle of it like it's your story so having perspective is is important as as well but I think most memoirs suffer from lack of editing like there's too much in there it's it's not like if you're telling your quote unquote life story, you're not supposed to say, you tell every story that ever happened to you right. that's, that's interesting. Like what is propelling the story forward that pivots on the themes that you are, you know, finding most important in telling that story.
1: Well, let's talk about the craft of memoir. The what do you think memoir. makes a good or great memoir?
0: It's a good question. I wanna throw that to you as well, um, as somebody who's written memoirs, I mean, for me, you know, my, my, my book kind of falls into the sports memoir category. Right. And I think most sports memoirs suck. Hmm. They're terrible because they're, they're vainglorious. Like they're, they're generally written by a ghostwriter in the twilight of a certain athlete's career as an exercise in extending um, that particular athlete's brand viability. Um, and so it, they tend to focus on all the great stuff that they did, but they rarely paint a full picture of that person's life. Like they they don't they don't typically have the level of candor and honesty and vulnerability that I think is is critical to connecting with a readership. I mean, there's exceptions to that. I think Andre Agassi's mm-hmm. memoir is exceptional for that reason. Um, so for me. I didn't want to be influenced by that genre, so I didn't go out and read a bunch of memoirs and try to deconstruct what would make for a good memoir. I just tried to tell my story as openly and as honestly as I could, and and the framework that I use for that is Mm -hmm. sort of the what happened, you know, what what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, which is like the twelve step format of sharing your story and (laughs) somebody who's. Sat in tens of thousands of of twelve step meetings and listened to people share their stories and I've had the opportunity to share my own many many times. Um, that was really more of where my head was at. Like how can I how can I tell my story in an extended version of, of that format and to do it as as honestly as I could.
1: So that's interesting. That's kind of a storytelling workshop for you in a way, the 12 step. Like, oh, big like, time. Yeah, and, yeah. As
0: a, and as a podcast host. The, the bridge between, know?
1: the writing bridge from undergraduate all the way to the book, but the storytelling, the creative writing, the storytelling and the memoir aspect is kind of like, um, you know, you're soaking it in in all these meetings.
0: Right, and when you are in a position where you're telling your story a lot, Yeah it starts to tell you what it is. Mm-hmm. And when you have an audience, you, you can gauge in real time, like what people are responding to, what's important, what's not.
1: I think uh, David's, that's why, one of the reasons that you wanted to spin it back, yeah. but Can't Hurt Me was a success, uh, a lar- large part, uh, because david had been telling versions of that story in his recruitment mm-hmm. uh, for the navy's recruitment um speaking gigs t- during the navy when he'd go to high schools and colleges um and he'd been telling it on podcasts you know obviously right. starting here and then and then uh, other podcasts as well and so he was able to do that and he was a master of that story by mm-hmm. the time he got here you know you'd think you're the i think you were one of the first podcasts he was on but he'd been telling that story and versions of it right. since, for 10 years already. Yeah. And so he was a total master of it. And so when, when I got linked up with him, you know, my my job is just to be the, the blank channel and to try to channel as much of pure David into it. So right. um, so it's interesting because like, it, it's the same idea, you know, you hear the story and the story starts, you refine it and it, it becomes almost an organic process.
0: So when you were writing that book, were there, other literary reference points that you were trying to to you know mimic in some way like what were the inspirations beyond just david himself
1: Well, I mean, I think David, I'd have to put that at the top because his story is so epic that you knew is going to help a lot of people if Mm -hmm. it's done well. You know, like it's just an incredible story. It's it's a real life Rocky story. So, like, how often does that fall in your
0: lap? Sure, but in structuring it, I'm sure he told you some incredible stories that didn't make it into the oh yeah, hundred percent, yeah, yeah.
1: So, how you structure it was, um, you know, I'd have to think about it. But I, I what what was really in terms of my. My approach, the only, um, I didn't think about anybody else's memoir, really. The mm-hmm. only one I can think of, of a ghostwritten memoir that I really loved was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And so that's, you know, that's, a good that's Alex Haley wrote that. And so I thought, you know, first of all, when, before David even came around, when someone asked, when Bird asked me if I would be interested in ghostwriting, mm-hmm. I thought, well, if Alex Haley could be interested in ghostwriting, then I certainly could be interested mm-hmm. in ghostwriting. Um, And so, you know, that book is one of my favorite books of all time. I think it's the goat when you talk about memoir. Um, I I don't think there's a better memoir ever. Um, And so, certainly there was that. But I didn't go back and read it. I didn't like think about structure in that way because I I think what I was mostly concerned about was telling his story properly and keeping it true to him. Mm -hmm. And so, it's like as long as that's your your focus is on making that story great, um, then. Uh yeah I didn't I didn't think of it any other way. Right. Um and I just tried to rely on how did I write because I I I still even though One Breath didn't sell as I'd hoped. I knew it was a good book. So how can I take what I learned there and apply it to this mm-hmm. and um and write something that's good. So that that's really my whole approach but I didn't have any sort of you know uh feeling how, how it would go or how it would turn out.
0: And when you look back on One Breath or or even the the Goggins book can't hurt me. Do you look at it and think I should have done this or I should have changed that? Or are you able to just say, yeah, those are great.
1: Well, you know, it's funny you say that with one breath, um, there was when I at my first book proposal with one breath included me as a part of the investigation. So like mm-hmm. the way Krakauer did into right. the, into, into the wild.
0: into the narrative. And
1: which is how most people do, well, not most, there, there's been a period of time where it's in vogue to do that way or not to do it that mm-hmm. way. Um, I always thought that you should tell it that way because it gives the reader someone besides the protagonist to relate to. Um, and so, and those were some of my favorite Books into thin air, especially, but he's obviously on the climb that's almost part memoir, but into into the wild, him investigating it is part of the story, right. so I thought that was going to be it, but then, when we got the deal, um the uh, editor at Crown didn't want that he wanted it to be more like Shadow Divers, which is this story where the journalist is is the channel but is not in the story mm-hmm. um, and then I read a book called uh, Behind the Beautiful Forevers by I think it's Catherine Boo, which is a masterpiece. And that was kind of one of the first nonfiction books I'd read in a long time where uh, there was no, the journalist wasn't there, but obviously was there. Mm-hmm. It's it's all about the Mumbai slums and mm-hmm. the people that live in the Mumbai slums, but it's a beautiful book. and. um so I thought that that she's the ticket. So I've paid attention there. But in terms of memoir, I didn't I didn't do it. I mean, I, I I've liked I've loved some memoirs. I love Eat, Pray, Love. Obviously, you know, with Gilbert, I think she's set the standard. And, and and a lot of books that we've seen since then owe owe their existence to Eat, Pray, Love. Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius by Dave Eggers was sure. monumental. Love that. Um, I love the Zanzibar Chest, which is probably out of print now by Aiden Hartley, which uh, which was great, a, a, a journalist that worked for the, in the nineties in Africa, all the wars in Africa and covered those. So, you know, there are definitely some memoirs I loved, but I didn't really uh, look at them uh, when I was taking on David's
0: story. Was that a conscious decision?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I don't, you know, that's a good question. I just didn't think that they had, I, I, I didn't, my, I needed to tune into David Mm-hmm. You know it's different. you know when you're writing a book that's your byline and that you're taking on, I think you have more there's more latitude, but this time I needed to I needed to tune into David, right. and um, and so that's what I did. So I spent all my time tuning in there.
0: The book that I would add to that list, which is a great list, is uh, Murakami's What I think about when I think about running right, um, which is definitely a touchdown for me. Uh, but I think I, you know, the other thing that was going on when I was writing this book is, it's kind of funny, is that around the time that my book was announced, it was also announced that Scott Jurek was writing a book. Right. So Scott Jurek, you know, <laughs> being the reigning, you know, king of ultra running and also a plant-based athlete was a pretty heavy blow and semi-demoralizing to me. I mean, nothing but love for Scott, but I'm thinking, we're writing these 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 like dueling memoirs at the same time. Like, why would anyone read my book? Like, mm. they can read Scott's book. He's the king. I've never even won a race. I can't even believe I have a book deal. Like, given that I'm not like a world champion athlete or anything like that, it was confusing. It's like, oh, I'm gonna write this book. Like, what is the way in? Or what is the reason that I can give somebody to read this book? And I I realized, or I settled on this notion that I think was really fundamental and important, which is the success or failure of my book would be directly correlated to the extent to which I was willing to be vulnerable. Hmm. Because the story I wanted to tell was a more relatable human story, an aspirational story versus an inspirational story. And, And my ability to connect with the reader, that connective tissue would be forged through kind of sharing things I'm not proud of and in, in hopes that that would like breed some, some level of of uh, recognition, like some, so that, it, so that anybody reading it, who's harboring some kind of pain or secret themselves could say, well, I, oh, wow, I relate to that guy. Or there's a part, even though the details of this is an, another like, 12 step thing. Like, even though the details of that story are very different from mine, like I identify with the feelings and the emotions. Mm. And so I use that as kind of a North Star.
1: Yeah, that's why, like, I, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's very different book, but Eat Pray Love kind of came to mind when I was reading this because she that's one thing I think that made that book so successful. Right. right. And so you followed in that track, which I think is a great track. I I love that book. Yeah.
0: And I I think Liz is amazing. And I know she's a friend of yours. Mm -hmm. Like I just think she's the best. Yes. She's the coolest. Yeah, yeah. Especially when her and Rob Bell get together, like it's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, but she got a lot of shit for that book, right?
1: Later, but like at first it was- Was that because a, a, of the
0: a, Oprah thing or the movie or what was it?
1: Well, I think I mean the first of the book was a cultural touchstone. Right. So it so I think huge. I think anytime you get so big, the haters come. Right. So I think what happened at first was the book came out, it made the list, it was doing all right. She was going around the bookstores just like we described. And, you know, I went to a reading at Borders when I, I don't even think it's still there mm-hmm. on La Cienega, and maybe like fifty people were there. So it's not a bad turnout at all. Uh, but it wasn't like and then like i think six months later or maybe several months later she told me she was with uh you know the a publicist going to a reading in san diego and she had just done oprah and there was like lines around the block and that's mm. when everything changed for her and she wow. became it became monumental and so for a long time it was it was very pop i don't think there was anything negative and then i think maybe that backlash came later i don't know sure. what it was it was like uh you know, she was it was missed. she was misdefined as like being some rich person who had gone on this trip and, right. and she, which was not true. Mm-hmm. You know, she had she she was doing fine as a writer because she's a great writer, but she wasn't like this she wasn't not self made. Right. So uh so there was there was a lot of bullshit backlash, but right. that, that comes, I think, when you get certain, when you get big, right. I and mean, that's what happens. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Well, speaking of 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 bullshit, let's talk a little bit about the publishing world. <laughs>
1: <You> <laughs> well, know? I want I to- Cause
0: like, <laughs> I did not have the experience of going on Oprah and having no. lines around the block. <laughs> no. I had a very different experience. Yes. But I think it beckons like a little bit of uh, discussion around like how publishing works. And this is a little inside baseball, but I think it's interesting. And I think people who read books would find this interesting if they're not already aware of it. Yeah. As I mentioned, like my book didn't make the New York Times bestseller list. It's had this slow build. It continues to, I mean, it's still like in top categories on Amazon, particularly it's the amazing. audiobook. Like it's still number one, two or three in cycling and running and triathlon and stuff like that. Amazing. And, Which is great, but on the whole like New York Times bestseller thing, right? Like, you know, I know from going through this process many times, and also by dint of hosting authors who have books coming out on the podcast, because now podcasting has become like a de rigueur stop on the book publishing tour. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to go on these shows, and then we try to work with authors so that the episodes come out around the book's release. Uh, And I do the best I can. I can't always commit to that, but you know, I understand that they're here. Uh, you know, to try to get their book out into the world. And I certainly don't begrudge anyone that, like I'd be doing exactly the same thing. Um, So the way it works is there's a pre-order period and then there's the publishing week. And all book orders during that pre-order period and including that first week after publication, all books come out on Tuesday for some weird reason. Right. um, Are counted towards first week sales. And that first week sales number is what gets fed to the New York Times and has a lot to do with how they crunch the numbers and decide who makes, that, uh, who makes it onto the list. What people don't know is that this system is very easily gamed. Mm. Like You can literally buy your way onto the New York Times bestseller list and many, many people do it. I don't know. I know that like now people are more aware of this and perhaps the New York Times and other people that compile these lists have precautionary members to weed out bad actors. But at least the last time, or when Finding Ultra came out, like there's there's like companies that you can cut them a big check and then they go and purchase the book through all the varying outlets at specified periods of time. So they take your money and they use it to buy your own book. And the way it works is you can't just bum rush Amazon and buy a ton of books. Like you gotta spread it out through all the different online retailers, et cetera. Um, so that it doesn't look like there's a bad actor. <laughs> you know, and these there and are people that know books? how to do this. Do you burn your own book? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> who gets the I mean, books? I can't imagine doing this, but no. a lot of people do this um so that you know, they have huge numbers during that pre-order period and during first week. and then they end up on the on the bestseller list. But it's a complete it's like fake news, right? right like right, right. they've just bought their own book, and so their book disappears the following week. No one's ever heard of it again. Um, At the same time, like I know a lot of CEOs or high net worth people that put out books, particularly like business books or how-to books. Um, They can, because they're high net worth people, can just buy their own book and then like either give it to their staff or resell the book when they do public speaking appearances so they're like they double dip on it but they buy a gigantic stash that they sit on and can kind of sell over time and that has the similar has a similar effect interesting so it's crazy so that's why you'll see a book appear and then you'll never hear about that book ever again that's a pretty good indication that and I would imagine that the New York Times is probably much better at trying to figure out who's doing this and who isn't
1: yeah also I, I think I'm pretty sure I don't have I don't know for a fact but I'm I'm I, I'm pretty sure almost positive that also the New York Times, doesn't have like it's not just about who sold the most. They have like certain yeah. criteria, like they they they're skewed. There against. There is a
0: weird subjectivity yeah. that gets injected. Yeah, and that. I don't
1: know what it is, yeah. but like it's not really just straight who sold
0: not exactly. Yeah. it's not pure numbers. Right. And also, what is the current status or or their stance on self published books, Adam?
1: Right. Well, they, I mean, I don't think uh, Can't Hurt Me got a fair shake on that list at all. I you know, mean, like, like it was.
0: So it, they did it, was it ever on the list? It I was. It, it was oh, on the was. list, but it was, oh, it was like, so I thought they have an wasn't. audio
1: list and it was never on the audio list, even though we were, you know, Clearly. we're still, we're still uh, getting like the, this is one of the top uh, listened to audiobooks still. Right. And, and, you know, the Audible's the main platform and we were at the time like, Number two for right. months. It was like
0: and, you and and, and Michelle and Obama. Michelle Obama.
1: And then, uh, so I don't think we got a fair shake there. We didn't get a. It was it was on the general list maybe once, and then it was on the self help list. And so it was nice to be on the list and be recognized, but it wasn't a fair shake because mm-hmm. and I don't think it was reflective of the sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. It's interesting how yeah. that works. I mean, because. Because I I just remember when it first came out, I mean, obviously like it was selling like crazy and it wasn't on the list. Still. But I believed at that time they had a policy that that self-published books were not eligible.
1: Exactly, and maybe that's over because they're starting to cover self-published books a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. But like, um, you know, what I loved about your thread was, and talking about the long game is, it ultimately doesn't matter because what mattered more is like what you're building towards. And you said it yourself on your thread that you know, looking back, that that vanity phase doesn't even matter when you're talking about actually um, influencing people and and having people read it and 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 enjoying the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm really proud of the fact that it has become a perennial seller. Yeah, and that's that's very meaningful. Like, can your who's buying your book ten years later it seems like a more Important metric, but less sexy because I can't call myself a New York Times bestseller. Very author. uncommon, though. Ten yeah.
1: years later, you know, yeah. very. But so. but, what, what is there anything you would do differently? Um, you know, looking back in terms of uh, what you included in the book, any passages that stand out, or I mean, hundred
0: percent. That- I I don't think that you've grown as a human being if you can look back on a creative work and be satisfied with it. I mean, I'm proud of it. Um, and I'm not about to like rewrite it again, but and I don't I don't go back and crack it because there's a certain cringe factor right. with that. Like you can't be seen same, doing that. I don't listen to my own podcast. Like, <laughs> you, can't you can't have know, your like, children running yeah, to you reading all right, your own book. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> look, I don't need to, but uh, yeah, there's tons of stuff that I would change. I think as you grow and you mature, and also you get a sense of like what was important about that or meaningful and what wasn't, mm. and. You know, I had an opportunity to comb through it a couple of years ago when I rewrote it and I took out a ton of stuff that I couldn't even believe that I included the first time around. And I think today, if I was to go back and rewrite it, the main thing I would do would be to just make it a pure memoir and get rid of all the appendices and all the kind of lifestyle stuff and um, and that, because that's almost like a second book mm. and just make it a pure memoir as opposed to this hybrid memoir kind of, Lifestyle guide aspect that it has to it, which I think is helpful to a lot of people. But that might have got people... the,
1: that got people interested in, in sure. That probably helps you sell. But
0: maybe it, it should have been maybe you know yeah. maybe, um, but maybe that should have been a second book. Um, maybe the title isn't great, and maybe I shouldn't uh, be running on the cover. There no. seems to be some some conflicting opinions about that. But I think when I think it suffered from the fact that when it came out with its title and the title image that people thought it was a book about running, which it kind of is, but it really isn't. No, right. Um, so I, I don't know that it really sells the the crux of what the book is about. And perhaps that was a barrier that prevented it from breaking out a little bit more mm. broadly. Um, at the same time, like, you, you know, I don't know, I think I would, I mean, I think I have a better grasp on the story and with some maturity, I have a better understanding of some of the things that I went through and I, I could like write to that a little bit more eloquently and maturely than I did at the time, because distance always creates that. I wouldn't change it whole cloth, but I think I would take out any, like the first time, the first edition of the book that came out, I had like, you know, here, you can find my protein powder here, like stuff like that. I was like, that's, I can't believe I put that in the book. Like that had no place in the book, Mm. Um, especially if you want to write something that's gonna stand the test of time. Like mm. get rid of all that nonsense mm. and just write a great story.
1: Mm. What about uh, any plans for a future book by Mr. I mean, Retroll through the publishers? I know you're putting I, out I, these, I really, great, these I really, great books.
0: Yeah, I really do wanna write another book and I, I definitely have another book in me. The challenge is my life is so busy and full. Like when I wrote Finding Ultra, I had nothing going on. Right. Like, I was like, I'm writing this book and I would just write it all day. Now, like, I'm I'm occupied all day long every single day. I can't imagine being able to carve out time to write a book. I don't know how people with busy lives do that. Like, there's no way it's going to happen without help. That's where the ghostwriters come in. I know,
1: but then I'm not a big. I'm going to have to write
0: with. I'm going to have to work with. But then it's the control thing. It's like I'm a writer. Like, why would I have somebody else help me write a book? But the reality is, yes, you may be consider yourself a writer, but like, without. It's either like hold on to that and never write another book or accept help, work with somebody else and get another book out in the world.
1: Mm. you uh, i don't I don't love this trend of social media star with huge following plus ghostwriter formula because I don't think that produces books people want to read that much, but I mean, obviously, I understand why publishers do it because they're trying to get sure things, but I'm not sure. I want I I would love to see like an audit how well that does for the publishers like um but in your case um no I mean I think I think you can have a ghostwriter and 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 still write obviously still write something that people want to read because it's a matter of how you tell the story um and and I don't think that you know I think that having been through that my you know my job is to stay out of the way and channel uh you know as much from from whoever's telling me the story, mm-hmm. and who's really the author of the book and the author of the story, and who lived that life, and be blank. And so I think you know if you find someone who can do that, but I, I just don't think that always happens.
0: I think it's, you know, to your first point about people with social media followings and ghost writers. It depends on the individual. Like yeah. how interesting is that person? What yeah. is the story they're going to tell? And most people aren't writers. So they benefit from having a really good writer, help them crack that story open. Like yeah. what you do, what Neil Strauss does, like they elevate every, you know, everything you elevate everything that you're involved in. So there's a real value to that. Um, I think the ghostwriter thing could be a little bit more transparent in certain cases. You know, I, I don't like it when you see somebody who's a celebrity or somebody with a big following and they They pass it off like they wrote the entire book and I know that they didn't, you Mm. know, because I know from behind the scenes that they got help from person X, Y, or Z. Just be honest about it.
1: Well, I think Barack Obama outed Michelle Obama for having a team of ghostwriters. Uh, Did he? (laughs) Yeah, I think. What happened there? He was trying to explain. I, know, I don't know. She, this. I think he got he got he was trying to say like why it took so long for his book to come out while her book was just dominating the charts. Oh. And that, he's oh. like he's Cause like he I actually wrote, wrote yeah, it cuz yeah, he, Cause wrote he
0: it. I mean he wrote his first wrote book it. when he was in college, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, or law wrote, school? It. Yeah, he yeah. wrote it. Yeah. 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 So, I don't know, but so so that's kind of the I mean, if I was going to write another book, what do you think that book should be?
1: You want me to pitch you your next book?
0: Yeah. I won't true, tell you where my head's at with it, but I wanna hear what you think. True crime. True crime. Lean into yes. true crime. Um,
1: <laughs> you know, that's interesting. I think it would be it would be the second phase, you know, like what? how do you, you know, what happens, um, you know, in the years after Finding Ultra, building the podcast business, an inside look at what the podcast, because I think there hasn't been that book yet, describing early days of the podcast business and how that goes. And you can do that while at the same time, um, kind of, pers- you know, turning fifty and being in the in in that and 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 having the, kind of dealing with even your injury that you're dealing with now, and I think all of that would result in some interesting kind of storytelling.
0: Yeah, I don't know how to crack that open.
1: But that, don't you think that that's the subject matter?
0: I think it would be. I don't know. I mean, is there enough story there? Right. I think it would. I think it would be more along the lines of. Picking certain subjects or topics from longevity to gratitude to acceptance to and then like kind of doing not memoir, doing some storytelling within like, you know, having each chapter be on a different kind of concept.
1: Like a blue zones but with multiple
0: concepts. I don't know. Blue no. There's no no travel involved to Sardinia, (laughs) I don't think.
1: You're going to play Malibu. The, blues,
0: <laughs> the blue zones of human experience. blue zones of Malibu. I <laughs> zones of Malibu. <laughs> yeah. I, see, here's the problem, Adam. I don't know. <laughs> you haven't figured
1: it out. I, I, yeah, I have. You can always just go. Fiction. I know that.
0: Listen, I know there's another book in there. I have yet to crack what it is. And mm-hmm. I, I think that I would be asleep at the wheel if I didn't figure out another way to, you know, birth. Another project, but you just told I just, a story like,
1: about being broke ass and having to take your growing garbage out in the minivan. I mean, yeah. like, and then starting I told a little bit of that,
0: a little bit about that in the revised right, and updated right. version of Finding Ultra, which right. you would know if you didn't weren't sitting there <laughs> with the old version. <laughs> I read the I read the one I, I tried to order yeah. that protein powder. Yeah, I know, right? I still get emails like, "Where can I get that thing?" And I was like, "I discontinued that a long time ago." I can't believe I put that in. I'm so ashamed of that. No, it's you whatever, <laughs> dude. You um, know,
1: like your editor could have helped you. <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't know, man. But you know, look, I'm really proud of the book. I I, I can't believe that you know people are it's still finding audiences ten years later, mm. and. uh you know, as I said in the in, in the tweet thread, it is indicative of kind of everything that I've been able to succeed at in life. It's just this idea of staying true to who you are and doubling down on your instinct of what's right for you and being patient and not getting caught up in externalities because we do over-index on accolades and starting line benchmarks and we mistake them for meaningful predictors of, of long-term success. While we remain blind to the greater opportunity to, you know, kind of patiently and persistently build a sol- solid foundation mm. for for su- sustainable success over time, and um, you know, I would have loved to have come out with a splash and had a, you know, Liz Gilbert experience. That's not what happened, and I realize in retrospect that that. Um, What happened was supposed to happen, and I'm I'm very grateful for the way that it unfolded. Also, you know, I wouldn't have been able to emotionally handle that, and I probably would have imploded Hmm. had I had that kind of success.
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah. I mean that that's like once in a that's that's once or twice in a generation type success. You know, like Oprah's. You know, nobody is makes books like that anymore. Like with a touch of of a of 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 their signature. Um, help open up a whole audience for for books like I don't even I mean there's several people that are doing it Reese Witherspoon is doing it in her way yeah, she's book, sort of
0: the heir apparent uh, there's book
1: book Instagram um, mm-hmm. influencers like in that world they're doing it. But I don't know if the, anyone, if there will ever be another time like Oprah had with the Oprah's Book Club, or where she really, she really book, had an incredible an influence on yeah. a lot of people, which is, you know, speaks yeah, yeah, to yeah. the trust that she created through her audience and through the work she'd done for her whole life. So, mm-hmm. um, it's cool that that happened, but in the end, the book has to be great, or you're not going to get someone like Oprah interested. And in, you know, like she was recommending great books, so yeah. you know, she really, yeah. she was really reading them and really loving them. So. You know, there's also that, it's not, yeah. it wasn't contrived.
0: I feel like Reese Witherspoon is is really shouldering that mantle. Yeah, yeah, days. she's
1: the closest, yeah. yeah but yeah. I don't think you can accurately say. Well, I mean, it was also- She did help with, I think, um, Crawdads, uh, which is a, what's, let me uh, make sure I get the title right, which is one of the best novels I've read in a long time. Um, Well, uh, Where the Crawdads Sing
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, by Delia that, Owens. Though. I thought that might've been a, that might've been an, uh, uh, Reese, I recommend, but I, I'm not 100% mm. sure. And that is a magnificent book.
0: Right. Um, cool, any any final thoughts before we close this out? Well, no, you've got a giveaway, right? Yes. Tell us about the giveaway. So so first of all, I just wanna thank everybody who has taken a chance on this podcast or taken a chance on on this or any of the other books that I've put out or my wife and I have put out together. Uh, I, I just can't even believe that I get to like do this thing and, and live this life. Super grateful for everything, all the hardships and the successes. Um, I just get to wake up every day and come and, you know, be here with people like you. And it, it's 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 a gift, man, it's such a gift. And I have to like remind myself of that when it gets hard or I get grumpy or I don't sleep well or my back hurts or whatever. But it's really all because of you guys, the audience, who have you know basically um, allowed me to you know continue to do this, and it's 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 incredible, man. So I'm super mm-hmm. grateful and thank you. Uh, also, I should point out though that although the book you know <laughs> continues to sell, it's still the readership for Finding Ultra is still a tiny fraction of the podcast audience. So there's a lot of people who listen to or watch this podcast who have not read the book mm-hmm. and. So maybe this 10 year anniversary celebration um, is a good reason for you to finally check it out. There's a lot in the book that, you know, stuff I don't talk about on the podcast. And I just think whether you're an ultra runner or a plant-based person or not, or you struggle with addiction, it's really a story of trying to find out who you are and overcome obstacles in your life to, you know, be more authentically you. And the template is ultra endurance and the template is recovery. Um, So the facts of my experience may not be any, you know, even the least bit similar to your lived experience, but hopefully there's something emotionally in there that you connect with. And like I said, the 10th anniversary of the book is a good time or excuse to check it out. And to kind of sweeten that, uh, we decided that we would do uh, a giveaway. So I'm gonna give away 50 personally inscribed copies of the book to 50 winners. If you would like to enter the giveaway, um, you need to subscribe to my newsletter. To do that, you can go to richroll.com slash subscribe. Basically, you just provide your email address, you join the mailing list. Um, and then in the next couple days, we'll send out an email to everybody who is a subscriber with further instructions on how to like enter the giveaway. Um, we've set a deadline. Uh, of June 9th to secure an entry. There's no purchase necessary. We have official rules um, that we'll apprise you of. So anybody can be entered to win without buying anything. Again, richroll.com slash subscribe. And I should say on that point, we've had an email um, list for quite some time. And historically we've used it just to send out an email every time there's a new podcast out uh, and then occasionally an email about like a rebate or a deal on the Plant Power Meal Planner or something like that. But I think I'd like to figure out a way to make more productive use of this email list and the subscriber base. So I'm interested in what you guys, the audience, the listeners, the viewers would like to see. Like, would you like to receive an email from me? And if so, what would be, included in that email that would be valuable to you and i think i've been reluctant to to pursue this a for bandwidth reasons because like it would be additional work for me but also at the same time i'm sensitive about sending people emails like everybody's mm-hmm. email inbox is, is overflowing at the, at this point but we're also in a period of time where people are creating substacks and and you know kind of subscription newsletters so there is a receptivity to receiving something that would actually be helpful and valuable. And I'm interested in trying to figure out what that might be for all of you guys. So if you have some thoughts, you can uh, tweet at me at Rich Roll or send an email through the website or DM me or leave a comment on the YouTube video. See, listeners, other
1: people say, don't at me. Rich says at me.
0: Right, I mean, I'm not saying I'm gonna get back to everybody, (laughs) but- I'm interested in soliciting everybody's input because I don't want to create something and send it out if that's not what people are interested right, in. Right, right, right. No, you know, I like because that. I I don't want to be, um, you know, I I I don't take it frivolously. Like, no, no, no. You know, it Should be, yeah, it should be valuable well thought out if yeah. I'm going to do
1: that. Yeah, not. It's not just about like putting something out there. It's putting something out there that could yeah. be of use. Right. Yes.
0: And uh, love that. I think that's it, dude. Did we do it? I think we did it. How about that? All right. Well, we'll be back in two weeks with another roll on. Yes. In the meantime, be well, everybody.
1: And roll on.
0: Parting thoughts.
1: Me? Um, No, I have zero parting thoughts. Uh, Let's see. Do I have parting thoughts? I think, uh, what am I? What am I? Oh, you know what? I got into succession.
0: I finally oh, did you it. Did. I
1: finally started liking it.
0: So we haven't outline like what we've been enjoying. We didn't get to that today. No. Uh, I got a lot of a lot of wrecks and lots of pics. Uh, we gonna, gotta get next you're gonna, time. You're doing a deep cut though. Next time. culture.
1: I'm 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 yeah, dude, I'm like I'm like in the in the office all day into the night. You're on and, the grind and right and now. I'm on the grind, but it's gonna be worth it and then we so, can talk about it sometime. All right, stage. yeah. Maybe
0: next time we'll share what we've been enjoying. I've been enjoying some cool stuff at the moment. Right on. And uh with that. I bid you adieu. I do. See you in two weeks. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Can you hear that beeping? I wonder if the mics are. <laughs> Can you hear that? There's a truck back. You guys hear up. that? For the last two hours, there's been a truck backing up.
1: Yeah. That's Brogan the out there trying to back <laughs> his way in here. I
0: know. Once again, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Brogan.
1: broken. <laughs> <laughs>